Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Welcome back, Beats by Social Work listeners. We're your hosts, Kristen and Tiffany. We started this podcast to talk about all things transplant and LVAD social work, also known as left ventricular assist device. We want to bring you information, education, discussions, and connection to humanize the world of transplant and LVAD. Last episode, we had the absolute privilege of chatting with Nikki Montgomery, CEO of Madvocator Healthcare Training and Education. We got the chance to speak about bias, advocacy, and access as well as health literacy, organizational health literacy, and so much more. Seriously, you guys, if you have not heard it, go listen right now. Run. This episode will be waiting for you when you are done. Seriously, go run now. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, during that episode, Nikki talked about the impact of having a medically complex family member growing up and then having a son with medical complexities. So we figured it would be a perfect segue to continue the discussion while also following our psychosocial evaluation. So this week, it's time to explore family history and why as LVAD and transplant social workers, we access that. Family is a huge and complex topic. Therefore, we're actually going to plan to break this into a series for you. So today's episode will be taking us back to our social work roots by a deeper dive into theory and how we connect that theory to our practice while continuing to highlight our clinical skills in the work that we do. So as always, we start with a quote. It is not the beauty of a building you should look at. It's the construction of the foundation that will stand the test of time. David Allen Coe. Good old David. So why is it important to talk about family and social history? I like to refer to this section as who's your daddy and what does he do? (laughs) (laughs) The, the word family, it's seriously, it has so many definitions and interpretations. And that's why I love that quote, because it talks about the foundation. Your foundation is your, your upbringing, your roots in a sense. And, and again, everybody has such different upbringing, different roots, different things that make them who they are and why they're Mm -hmm. the way that they are. And so much of it has to do with your family. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, obviously there's all the different definitions of it and interpretations, but we're going to look at it as referred to the family of origin. So we actually want to look into the family systems theory and the impact of stress on the family. We're going to take you back to Social Work 101. For some of us, that may have been a long time ago, but it's also when we were sitting in that classroom, when you think about it, baby social workers, and you're like, oh, theories, okay. Okay. Oh, and then you get into practice and it's, oh no, this, they don't teach you this. You, they don't teach you to be a social worker really in school. Right. But mm-hmm. there are lessons within those theories and we use them all the time without realizing it. It was our foundation, honestly. Yeah. And it becomes muscle memory too. So it's worth, I mean, just when you're at the gym and you're doing, you're working out and you're learning new fitness techniques, it's worth revisiting some of those fundamental movements that make sure mm-hmm. if you don't lay that foundation and you don't re- 
revisit those things, you're not going to be able to build on it and keep that fresh in your, in your conscious mind, not just your subconscious. Exactly. And remind you that you're using your theories. You're using this in every day. It might not be that you're documenting in your, in your psychosocial evaluation or your charts. You're not saying, well, according to Bowen's theory, we assess the, the family <laughs> from, you know, we're not doing that, but we, we are doing that. So we want to mm -hmm. remind you guys that you are and also give you that that confidence to say, yeah, we're putting theory into practice. So mm -hmm. Bowen's family systems theory. Let's look at that. That is kind of to encompass a theory of human behavior that defines the family unit as a complex social system. <laughs> say that again. Complex mm -hmm. social system in which members interact to influence each other's behaviors. Family members interconnect, allowing to view the family system as a whole rather than as individual elements. So just to paraphrase eight concepts that Bowen's family systems theory goes over. So we're going to break these concepts over the series, over the episode series. But let's go over those eight concepts basically. So the first one is triangles. Number two is differentiation of self. Three, nuclear family emotional process. Four, family projection process. Five, multi-generational transmission process. Number six, emotional cutoff. Seven, sibling position. And eight, here's another one, societal emotional process. <laughs> so triangles, <laughs> let's talk about that. What is that concept? So we look at triangles and what Bowen refers to it as a three-person relationship system. It's considered the building block or the molecule of larger emotional systems. But you look at it as two sides of that. The two-person system is unstable because because it tolerates little tension before involving a third person. So mm -hmm. kind of think about that as two individuals, two members, right? And then when you bring that third member, you know, think about a couple that has a child or think about a brother and a sister, then parents have another child. So kind of looking at it at that part, you have your side, but when you make a triangle, and I'm actually making a triangle for those that can't see in the... <laughs> video here that tension comes when you add that that third line that third connection mm -hmm. the reason that triangles can be very important in what we do not only with lvad and transplant work as social workers but just hospital social work in general is chronic illness or if you find yourself in an emergent situation where you're in the icu you were going to work one day and now you're in the icu it's not going it doesn't take away from the stress and that's what we say a lot to our patients is your problems aren't going to go away they just get worse because now you're in a state of crisis. And the reason that this is important when we look at Bowen's theory and triangles as one of those eight building blocks is because a lot of times this is where triangulation occurs. So who out there has heard of the concept triangulation? <laughs> yes. Let's say that you have a husband-wife. Husband is sick in the bed. Sorry, guys. I always use the husband as the, as the patient. But then we have the wife. They're fighting. This is their pattern of behavior. They have a tumultuous relationship between the two of them. They are naturally drawn to certain practitioners in your treatment team. And that is how they stabilize that tumultuous relationship. Because remember, the triangle is going to be the way that they stabilize. It makes it a little more easier to manage than just a two-person dynamic. 
So let's say you have a practitioner that goes, you know, they told me they only want to work with me. I feel so special. I am there and they hear what I say. They tell me, you know, you are really helping us through this process. Can we share with you all of the issues we're having in our marriage? And you know, I'm more than a nurse to them now, or I'm more than a social worker to them now. I'm now their family therapist. You see how they've drawn this practitioner, this member of our treatment team into their triangle. Tiffany, does that speak to you at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, even as you're explaining it in that way, it's talking to Bowen says it right there in his theory of they're taking sides in others' conflicts. And so mm-hmm. when the emotions are too much intensity and the attachment styles, that's when the, the side taking in a sense. So you also think about when, when you are referring to that, I look at it as when I'm working with a couple and perhaps the patient is the one that is having a lot of emotions and a lot of intensity. Maybe mm-hmm. it's coming out in a in a different manner than intended. And the the spouse kind of pulls you to the side. Hey, I just want to let you know. Like he gets really upset and he had a bad childhood. And so we just want to make sure that, you know, I, I don't say certain things, but I just want to tell you that I don't want this to impact anything, but I want to tell you so that you know, you know, getting those off the record. Or I want to tell you just so you know, but I don't want anyone else to know that this is what's Mm -hmm. happening but then goes back to bedside and is like oh yeah honey this is great you know we you're gonna make it through this the dynamics in that aspect can can lead to bias in a sense too of you because now you're hearing only one side of the story now as social workers we all have to remember that bias put it in check and speak directly to the to the patient themselves as well so even if a family member is trying to give you background or trying to give you influence in a sense Mm -hmm. remember to always check the story just like with anything there's always three sides to every story and this theory is is exactly that concept there's their side your side and the right side Tiffany, I am very glad that you brought that up in the example that you did because that's more specific to our assessment process. I'm not sure how other centers, well, every center does it a little differently, right? In terms of the assessment flow and every social worker is going to do it a little differently. One recommendation that I've offered to my colleagues is to interview the caregiver and the patient separately and together, especially that primary caregiver. Now, if you have a more, what would be considered a tumultuous or a potentially unstable family dynamic, you may want to interview additional caregivers separately as well to make sure that we have a cohesive plan and together. But the reason that I say that and digress is because when you brought that up, Whenever I do an individual interview with the caregiver or an individual interview with the patient, a lot of times that's when triangulation and that triangle concept from Bowen systems theory hits. That's when you, you hear a lot of, can I talk to you privately? One of the ways that you can tackle that as a social worker or as just a provider in general is I am sorry, but the part of the process is that we can't have secrets. If we do have secrets, that's going to impact their success later. We have to be transparent and thank you for sharing that with me, but let's talk about how we're going to talk about that as a group, because this is a team approach and that as the social worker, you're the one that gets to have that conversation, that tough conversation and taking that burden off of that person and, but not engaging in that triangulation. Mm -hmm. Spreading the tension can stabilize a system, but nothing's resolved. Right. Mm -hmm. And that says it right there in, in the theory. And I think that's also important because the, the relationship between 
the spouses is an important thing for us to know, not to get nosy, but because it's going to, to produce more tension as this illness progresses, as well as as the transplant or the LVAD implant takes place. You know, it is one of those areas where the why we, we talk about the impact of the psychosocial risk factors. And we know that prednisone and those high levels of prednisone is going to cause even more irritability. So if I know that a relationship is already kind of on the rocks, a little unstable, I might encourage them to consider not having the spouse as the caregiver because yeah. that can impact the relationship even more and really impact that outcome. Because when you think about it, I need to know about your relationship because this is hard on a marriage. This is hard on a relationship. Yeah. And this could be the thing that breaks the camel's back. And so if I know that there's already a rocky relationship, then not only am I going to be working with the patient and their emotions in general related to transplant LVAD, but I'm also then potentially going to have to work with them on the end of a relationship which is another important stressor. And so I have to know what we're getting into. Mm -hmm. And although the triangle is more stable than a dyad, the triangle creates the odd person out. Let me just add that it doesn't have to necessarily be a husband-wife, a marital dynamic. It could be a parent-child dynamic as well. Regardless, you make a good point, Tiffany, that there are role changes at play. Mm -hmm. So whether or not it's a husband-wife, mother-daughter, cousin, sister, whatever, that role is shifting to patient-caregiver. Mm-hmm. And that definition changes, but you still have that dyad. And so when you have that odd person out, and so taking a step back as social workers and saying, according to this theory, I know that the dyad will solidify their bond if they choose each other in preference over that odd person out or align differently. So I'm going to help encourage that solidification by having in conversations, by eliminating that triangulation and minimizing it as best as I can. That also means that we have to remind our treatment team providers that may not be as familiar with this theory to help encourage that solidification between the patient and the caregiver. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to also include there, not just the staff, sometimes you're going to witness that between the family members, which is also True. why it is so important to know, you know, the relationship amongst the family. And I know it can feel daunting because ugh, I have so much to get through in a psychosocial that I just don't really have time to go into all of that. But there's a reason for it. And so if you're going through that family dynamic and you see that there is perhaps a triangulation already formed with, you know, the caregiver, the spouse, the significant other, and a child, then the patient is already feeling kind of almost threatened or attacked. And then when you're you're talking to them about, you have to listen to them, they have to tell on you, they have to share what's going on even when you don't want them to, it almost mm-hmm. makes that triangulation or more so that dyad uh, e- even more prominent and that patient to feel impacted. And they may already be coming into the situation feeling that way, that those mm-hmm. two are closer. And so, you know, it, it really is important to learn that all that to say, it's very important to to know the relationships, to know the dynamics between that family, to recognize is there triangles happening 
within the family. And so moving on to the second concept, differentiation of self. So families and other social groups greatly affect how people think, feel, and act, but individually vary in their susceptibility to what's called group think. So for those of you who may not be familiar with the concept of group think, that's essentially how as an individual, you may think a certain way, but then when you get into a group of certain people that the way that you think is so greatly impacted by the people around you that the group itself forms its own organic and unique thinking pattern. Yeah, that is also where we look at the personality type, you know, those mm-hmm. that are more susceptible to group think in a sense, the, the more susceptible to be impacted by others versus right. being able to think for themselves, looking at, you know, the less developed person's self in a sense. And so that can be impacted because those individuals um, sometimes are the ones that are going to say, well, my, my family, my church, my social group says I shouldn't do X, Y, Z, or I should rather. I was told that if I drink this tea, you know, it could really help my, my heart failure stabilize. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are also those individuals that might be more susceptible to change their decisions on things frequently based on what the crowd is, is saying. Absolutely. And it's worth noting here. So you mentioned it already, but the less developed a person's individual self is, the more impact others will have on their decision making, their ability to think independently of the group. It's worth noting a lot of the time spent in childhood and adolescence forming that individual self, that's when that develops. And so if you have childhood trauma, or if you were not able to fully work through the stages of development. So now going into another theory of Erickson's theory of development, if you had trauma or addiction or something along those lines that impacted your ability to work through those stages, it will impact or potentially impact your selfhood or independent ability to think as a individual, not adopting the thought of a group. And I think also it's important to note that it can go the other way in a sense. People that have poorly differentiated self tend to depend on acceptance and approval, approval of others, which to say kind of to please others in a sense, but they also can take that to the point of becoming a bully, becoming Mm. that they are so reliant on others' approval that they almost bully others into their opinion their opinion because then people follow them well if i if i go quote confidently and that confidence though turns more into i'm going to make people agree with me and then in my own mind though it seems like they do agree with me even though perhaps they don't they just don't want to ruffle the feathers we look at some of those patients that come to us that are quote bullies that say well i know my body i know xyz so don't you think doc that we should do it this way don't you think social worker that i know what i need to do don't worry about it i got it covered and so it's important to recognize because those can be frustrating people to work with Right. And we have to remember that that might be coming from a different place that might be coming from their differentiation of self and that Mm -hmm. foundation wasn't there. And so we have to kind of look at it from that lens. Remember, frustrated people become frustrating people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But remember, we're assessing all of these things as they connect to the risk factors associated with outcomes for transplant and LVAD. And so it's not necessarily to dig into all of these pieces just for the sake of digging. 
-hmm. but it's now I have learned this, what based on my experience and what evidence has told me, how could this potentially affect outcomes? How can this affect a patient's ability to, uh, to remain in compliance or medical adherence to treatment? How will these, how will this information impact a family's ability to fulfill caregiver roles and responsibilities? So that's really what we're getting back to as we unfold all of these traits. And that brings us to number three, which is the nuclear family emotional process. Before we jump to number three, though, I want to put in okay. just a little quick plug there too, is mm -hmm. these theories that we're talking about, these, these concepts also help us to determine the ability to develop a therapeutic relationship. So yes. I think that outcomes 100%. And part of that outcomes, though, is are we able to have a therapeutic relationship? And now when I say that, mind you, I don't mean we have to be kumbaya, we're doing therapy necessarily. Now as social workers, we may be with that family. But and we're clinicians. Yeah. Right. We have to look at it from the, the term therapeutic, not just in therapy. I know we're a social work podcast, but um, the therapeutic <laughs> A aspect. therapeutic alliance. Exactly. And so when we look at, think our nurse coordinators, and they have to call the patient because the lab showed, oh, we need to actually increase your anti-rejection medication. Are they going to listen when they call to change that? Or, hey, we need to change to a different medication altogether. We are realizing that, you know, ProGraph's not working, so we're going to switch to fill in the blank or in the world of LVAD your blood thinner exactly your warfarin is the lifeline part of the lifeline for your LVAD it is what keeps you surviving with an LVAD and you have to have an appropriate INR level and are you going to get your INR checked are you going to take your warfarin as instructed because if you don't, the patient who doesn't runs a much, much, much higher risk of stroke, bleeds, so many complications. Well, and I'll say that goes back to the being influenced by others, more susceptible to influence, being able to trust your, your medical team to know that we are not going to put you at more risk than, than benefit and know yeah. that we are doing it for a specific purpose. And so that's where we have to be mindful too when we think about these concepts of how will that impact their ability to align with the medical team and to build that trusting relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great segue into number three, which is nuclear family emotional process. So this one actually breaks down even further. So there's four basic relationship patterns that govern where problems develop in a family. Mm -hmm. So essentially clinical problems or symptoms are usually going to be developed over periods of heightened and prolonged family tension. Uh, excuse me, extended hospitalizations could probably be a reason there that would stick right in. I was just going to say, you mean like end stage organ failure? Yeah, I don't know anything about this, but it sounds a lot like a clinical problem or symptom that would develop during periods of heightened and prolonged family tension. The tension level depends on the stress a family encounters, but also how the family as a whole adapts. I was going to say, we look at the, the marital conflict, mm -hmm. which is the family tension increases and spouses get more anxious. 
the spouse can externalize. I mean, okay, so when I look at relationships and when I ask about that part, it's this is tough on a marriage. This is tough yeah. on a relationship because you also have to think about the fact that the roles are changing. And that's hard because you don't want to get mad at the other person and you don't want to tell them that. But internally, you are getting a little bit upset. Maybe one person was in charge of the finances. One person was in charge of fixing the car. One person was in charge of garbage. One person was in charge, you know, X, Y, Z. But mm -hmm. the individual that's sick isn't able to do all the things that they were previously doing. So that partnership turns less partnership and more on one person. Mm -hmm. And so the patient's internalizing that as I'm not holding up my end of the, the deal, in a sense, I'm not able to do those things. And that can be really hard. While the other person is thinking, perhaps, man, I'm having to do this, 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 and this, and also so show much. up and be a cheerleader. And I don't want to have it. And it's not like they want to have these thoughts necessarily. I don't want to, but it's hard, point blank. Yeah. And if you're not talking about that, then it's even more difficult. And yeah. so, be ugh. Because there's a lot of times where feeling those feelings can be stigmatized too. It's, I should be grateful that my loved one is alive. I should be grateful that my partner is here and that my partner got a transplant and I should feel a certain way and pushing down the normal feelings that can come up by being a caregiver, such as resentment, fatigue, grief over the loss of the roles that you've had before. And I'll add to what you're saying, Tiffany, of you go from domestic partners to patient caregiver mm -hmm. when, when transplant is introduced, but then how after transplant, when your partner is starting to feel better, when the patient is improving and they want to take on more responsibilities and independence, how do you then go back from patient caregiver back to partners, back to marital partners? It's like you're taking the words out of my mouth and what I say to patients <laughs> during during that discussion, because I do. I say that, that exact thing, your your relationship changes, your caregiver, yeah, caregiver, but then how do you go back to, and let's bring it up. Let's just put it out here because we can. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Yes. Let's talk about all the things. Sorry, I can't help from breaking into song. But that's one of the big things too is- Can we dub some of that music into this where like- mm, 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 100%. I mean, maybe not that one, but we could definitely bring in some- <laughs> Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk... Anyways, it, the intimacy. Let's, let's put yeah. it out there. And mind you, we're also kind of bringing in, so the marital conflict, but we're also essentially discussing the dysfunction in a spouse too. I'll just put that there. Yes. So when you're not able to be intimate, that can impact. And I'm not going to say just, just on a man or just on a woman, because it's both. When you're not able to have that sexual closeness with your partner, and for, for some people, that is a big part of their relationship. Yeah. That is something that can impact all other aspects because it feels, it makes them feel less than. Mm -hmm. And they just can't. They're, they're end-stage organ disease. I mean, a lung patient cannot breathe <laughs> when they're an unstage end-stage lung. They can barely walk from the bed to the nightstand. I mean, and, and mm -hmm. our heart patients too, for that matter. But we look at our kidney patients to make it all inclusive that have a fistula and they're not feeling very frisky in that aspect. And it, it's your liver patients that are having some ascites or feeling, you know, a little too yellow that day. 
it impacts and maybe you're not yeah. having all of those but it's the medications that post transplant post lvad that are impacting your ability to get back to that that place and then to mm -hmm. bring it a step further that caregiver caregiver relationship that then changes how do you go from being that caregiver being that worrying all about medications to let's let's get back into our our groove Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought it up because sexual intimacy is a beautiful part of what makes us human and what brings joy to a lot of people's lives. And that's also important to note because uh, this really has nothing to do with the topic at hand, but you have transplant patients that are immunocompromised. And so if let's say you had poor perfusion and that impacted your ability to perform and now you're feeling a lot better, you also now have a suppressed immune system and you do have to be careful and how that impacts a marital dynamic. Oh, I think that is relevant to the topic at hand though, Kristen, because it's talking about also if you're in the dating phase, maybe you were not with a partner going into your surgery, going into your transplant. How do you, yeah. how do you date? How do you find that marital partner? How do you have those conversations and having to be, I mean, everybody should be safe and use protection, but even more so because when we think immunosuppressed, it's not just colds. It's not just yeah. the respiratory illness. It, I love the fact that you said that because it is, and I have that conversation with some of my patients too, when they tell me about a new relationship they're in. It's all right, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Now I don't go into full detail for the medical purposes, just like I don't go into full detail on other aspects for medical purposes. But I exactly. think it's worth mentioning here because I think it's also a topic that scares some clinicians. People yeah. don't want to talk about it. And we have to normalize the role that sexual intimacy plays in life and normalize that conversation and try and take that stigma away from it. Because the, at the bottom line, you don't want the stigma to get in the way of educating your patient. 100%. So I think, honestly, Tiffany, this is a really good place for us to, to stop this conversation. We can transplant your heart, but we cannot transplant your marriage. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say it that way is because a lot of times, I don't know if you've, you've dealt with this, I'm going to assume that you have, but you have a marriage that was probably on the rocks for a long time. And then one of the spouses got sick mm -hmm. and the, the subsequent spouse then says, I'm going to get them through this. But then when they get better, I'm out. Mm -hmm but they don't communicate that to the team. So then you have a patient who's transplanted, they're a year out, they're doing great, and then the spouse slash primary caregiver slash everything in between bounces. Mm -hmm. And you're left thinking, what just happened? And I will add there, just anybody that's been in this field long enough, for those that are just entering and for those that are just listening, Yeah. even the most solid marriages, have ended in divorce after transplant. Yeah. It's actually, there's a high rate of divorce. There's a high rate of ending of relationships within transplant and within LVAD. Reasons vary across the field, but it is. So even the strongest of relationships out there, I have seen ended in divorce going through this. This is a very intense, this is a, I, I say it as, this is a family diagnosis. It is not just happening to the patient. Patients, oh, I love yes, that. I know yes. it is happening to you, 
we see that, we hear that, but it's happening to everyone. And I think it is important for us to share that when we're having these conversations. And that's why it's a, it's a nugget of mine. That's why I always say that is that this is a family diagnosis Yes. to whatever family means to you, but it's not just impacting you. And you can look at that ripple effect and we can talk about that in later episodes, but just how much it impacts the family at large. So Mm -hmm. when we're doing these things, I know it seems like we're so personal and so quickly sometimes you're like, hi, my name is Tiffany. I'm going to learn your deepest, darkest secrets. Let's go. But (laughs) buckle up. (laughs) It's about building that report. And the details are so important because it's, it's, as Kristen said earlier, it's about the outcomes. We want to make sure that we are setting our patients up for success as best as we can. Knowing all about them helps that. It helps it in the short term, but also the long term. Because that's our goal, right? It's not just the here and now. It's year from now, three years from now, five years from now, plus. And so knowing about what makes them them is going to be able to help us gear up our toolbox. Mm-hmm. For the long run. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so with that, we will conclude today's episode. And with that, Tiffany. Kristen. Where we do have to do our Likert scale. All right, Tiffany. On a scale of the dead flowers that I have yet to throw away that are on my dining room table right now to the beautiful floral arrangement that you're so jealous of from your second cousin's six-figure wedding. Where do you find yourself on that scale? I can buy myself flowers. I was 100% going with the Miley Cyrus thing. That's actually why I bought those flowers, (laughs) was I was really vibing with that song, bought those flowers, and then forgot about them, and they died, and now I have dead flowers (laughs) on my dining room table. Oh, well, I'd say I'm on the, uh, I'm the fake flowers. Interpret that as you will. Smart, smart. You bought yourself flowers one time and you only needed to buy yourself flowers one time because you bought the right kind. They're a little dusty. They're fake, but. (laughs) They're a little dusty. (laughs) Okay. So. Where are you? Well, I'm not dusty flower status, not dead flower status either. So I think that, okay, for those people that are plant people out there, does anybody know about the Japanese peace lily? No? No. Well, I will be I'm happy answering to share for our with listeners. You. There might be a couple, but no. Thank you. I'm sure that we have lost 90% of our listeners at this point. But you know what? For the 10% that are ride or die and remain with us, the Japanese peace lily is the beautiful plant that everyone brings to funerals. And it is these big green leaves and this beautiful little white swan looking flower that pokes out the middle. But it is the drama queen of the plant world. This this silly plant because i really want to use some colorful language but i'm not going to this silly plant if you don't water it for a day all the leaves just go and just fall and all the plant people out there are laughing out loud i promise you everybody that has a plant and has tried to keep a japanese peace lily alive knows the struggle is real it is the drama queen of the plant world and that is where i find myself today so you're telling us you're the drama queen I am. I am. <laughs> I am sitting in all the emotion today, and I just don't have the headspace for anything else except my dramatic ass leaves right now. <laughs> well, alrighty then. On that note, do we have any beatbox moments in your dramaness? 
No, I don't believe that I have any uh, beatbox moments to celebrate, but I open it up to the listeners. Please email us with your celebrations, your wins, your victories. We want to read them out loud. Of course, we will maintain HIPAA compliance as we ask you to as well. Thank you so much, listeners, for sticking around with us as we introduce family systems theories and its impact on our work as LVAD and transplant social workers. So stay tuned for the next episode. And we will talk to you soon. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is one of our eligible episodes for CCTSW MCS credit. To receive certificate of listening confirming this credit, please visit our website blog and click the SurveyMonkey link. Powered by SurveyMonkey. This will open the post-show test. Just pass the test. Be sure to include your name as you would like it to appear in your certificate, as well as an email address for us to send your certificate of listening. Once you've completed this Either myself or Tiffany will review your answers and send your certificate to the email address you provided. Please allow five to seven business days for certification as we are both full-time transplant and MCS social workers. If you did not receive your certificate in seven days, please feel free to send us an email to beatsbysw at gmail.com.